Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. If you have a, a dream or a vision or a passion, but I always say to, to writers, everyone's like, if you're right, go write. Write people, write material and, and get it to people. It'll get read, get it to the people. But don't sit there and feel precious about it. Like if, you, if you're an actor, do scenes and do workshops and go do plays and, and, and work on your craft. You, we start talking about the stand-ups. It's, you know, the guys that, you know, did one set of the improv and got a development deal and not the guys that made it. It's the guys that night after night after night did the cities and the tours and things and perfected that voice and that craft. I, I don't think it's any different. If you want to be a director, you can take, you know, your cell phone and go shoot a movie these days and cut it on your home computer. You can, you can, you can write something and shoot it. Or if your friend's an actor, I mean, there's just, there's many more opportunities available now than there was. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Industry Standard. As true to form, every single podcast, I like to tell a little story about something that relates to myself or the guest or in some way. And in the case of my guest today, this is a guy who was very inspirational for me because he essentially gave me the opportunity to be an executive producer on a television show called Action that was a really groundbreaking show that I loved. And and he gave me a chance to be an executive producer with Joel Silver, the late Ted Demi, Don Rio, who had created so many shows and worked, I think, on Gleason and and then Chris Thompson, who was a, a tortured genius. And, and here I was on a series. I, I didn't even know what an executive producer technically was, but he, he gave me an opportunity to do something that I always wanted to do. And everybody there treated me like I belonged. It was an incredible feeling. And there's so many stories about the show and so many crazy things that happened because you were dealing with a lot of people who were volatile, creative types. Some of them were in and out of rehab. Writers who were literally looked like they were near death on many occasions. And it was coffee and cigarettes all the time. And they brought on Don Rio to sort of stabilize things because Chris Thompson, the creator, was going back and forth 
from another show that he created that got on the air called Ladies' Man with Alfred Molina. And here was a multi-camera show for CBS, a mainstream show that he was doing on one side of the studio. And then he'd walk across the way and be doing this groundbreaking, edgy show that really belonged on cable for Fox. So Don was brought on because there was so much, you know, so many of these writers looked like you literally thought you were going to an AA meeting when you walked in the writer's room. And Don was, he was like a rock, you know, he was this guy who'd he'd seen everything, done everything. And, and, he, and he was a dark soul too, but he just had this thing like when he stepped on the, the stage, it was like there was a new sheriff in town and everybody respected Don Rio. But, you know, Jay Moore was a guy who there was always no filter. And Jay would uh, sit down and have conversations with people. And, you know, he just was a ball buster. So it's like Don Rios. I think it's like his first day on the set. I'm sitting there and introduce myself to Don. And Jay introduced himself to Don. It's good to have you here. And uh, listen, Don, I've done, a, you know, I, I, I'm amazed at what you've done. I mean, you worked on like, the, you know, Gleason show. You toured with Slappy White when you were 17 years old. You wrote jokes. You basically hitchhiked down to a, a club he was working to in Rhode Island. He told you he wanted you on the road with him. You were working the Apollo Theater with Slappy White when you were 17. You've created amazing shows, worked on all these amazing shows, and now you're doing this. Uh, ah, it's incredible. But, um, you know, Blossom. I mean, you created Blossom with Mayim Bialik. I mean, what were you thinking? And Don leans his chair over and it takes a moment to stare Jay down. And he says, Jay, I own about 64 acres in Hana in Hawaii. I have a beautiful house there, and you can only get there if you take a helicopter from the airport. So, Jay, go f*** yourself. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Tell me about leaving Sony and your mentor, John Feldheimer, when Mike Ovitz started his new company and decided he was going to change the face of film and television. And you got the call saying, hey, you're my guy. You're the guy I need. Out of everybody in this town, you're the only guy I want to run this part of the company. Tell me about that meeting. Tell me about what happened. Tell me about how you talked to John and, 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 and that whole process. It was difficult and complicated, but ultimately he, John, was, was supportive and a friend and knew that I had been a little bit restless and wanted to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial because I do believe that there is a certain shelf life to these you know corporate jobs and the, the higher up you rise in these jobs, almost the further you get a little bit away from the actual process of doing what you like to do, which is really dealing 
with material and artists and writers and stuff. And it becomes just by the nature of the job, more corporate and more budget meetings and more projections and more of that kind of stuff. And I really felt like I was getting further and further away and we were incredibly successful. We had, you know, 15, 16 shows in the year and doing pilots every year, tons of pilots every year. And we had a, I went, we had a great family, but I felt like it, it may have been time. And, um, when I was at Columbia Tressa, we had made a deal with, uh, two managers named Rick and Julie Yorn and, uh, really smart people and, and people that I liked and trust. And they represented a ton of people going back to the Ted Demi, the late Ted Demi. And we did a lot of stuff together and they were the first people that Mike hired to, cause he was going to try to reinvent the management and, uh, representation business. And he brought them in because they had a great list of talent and, uh, and, and I had become, uh, well, who were some of the people that they were representing at the time for our audience? Um, Leonardo uh, was was Rick's big client for for and still is for that years. That would be Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, you know, he's one of the most successful managers in town, and he's got a, a very long Cameron Diaz, and there was just a ton of filmmakers and, yeah. and 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 the people that they represented, and they were interested in television, and they came to me and said, you know, we've, we've now grown to like each other, know each other. This is going to be a really big situation, and let's try to do this. And 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 Mike and the way he does, and got together with me, and, and really. So had you ever had you had a sit down meeting with Mike alone before? No, I had not. So and tell I, me about that first meeting because I remember when I met him for the first time, he had called me in there, and it was the strangest thing because I am the kind of person that I'm not an anxious guy. I don't right. I don't get nervous about anything except, of course, our podcast together. I was very nervous about this. <laughs> But I just, I, I've always been gone with the flow. It didn't matter who I met. I, I, and he called me in to set up a meeting with me. And I remember I was like anxious that there was something about it that I was like wondering, you know, I was like, a, I was like that girl before the date putting the clothes out on the bed, you know, which suit should I wear? How should I look? Should it, is this the right way? Should I wear a tie? What should I do? And when I met with him, it was just like, it wasn't exactly meant to be a situation where I, I guess I thought it would be more anxious inducing than it was. But still, when you met with him, you were meeting with a man that was like a different kind of person, like a, a guy who, unlike any other person you'll ever meet in the business. And so talk about that. Yeah, the mystique and the legend and what he did was, you know, second to nobody reinvented the entire representation business and, and how artists are, are represented and it was fascinating and i was i was terrified and i remember and we went to a little restaurant. <laughs> so we have something yeah problem. absolutely we went to a restaurant in beverly hills and tucked in some you know little private room and uh you know he has an uncanny you know him he has an uncanny ability to make you feel very comfortable and and is really well researched and he again knew a little bit about my dad he knew a lot about the tv business um and he immediately just has that ability to make you feel comfortable and starts telling stories. And once you sort of get past, oh, you're sitting with Mike Ovitz, you start, you know, realizing, uh, you know, he knows everybody and, and is connected to every, every situation. And he can start to pitch what he wanted to do and how he wanted to build out this new company. And, you know, the one thing that is amazing to me is, um, if we look at it today and, and, and how connected we all are to our devices and, and, and everything else. And none of this really existed in, in the late nineties and early 2000. He had, an incredible vision of where how content was going to be delivered. And he kept saying to me, I, you know, he had young kids at the time and they don't know the difference between ABC and NBC and this. So they, they want content and they going to get it where they want to get it and they don't care where it's coming from. And we're going to all have one device and it's, the TV is going to be connected to the phones. You're going to be connected to your little device. And again, none of us, there was no iPhones, no Blackberries, none of that stuff. And I'm not a tech, technology person. And yet, but he knew then he knew, that it was he going knew to happen. Beat by beat where this was going 10 years ahead of everybody. Everybody thought he was crazy. Um, and his idea was to, if you, if you can aggregate enough 
artists uh, who can create content that we in this company can own, platform of movies, television, music, comedy, and sports, put them all under one roof um, that we as a company can control and distribute this and movies are going to be distributed in a different way and networks, you know, they'll still exist, but there's going to be lots of new ones and different outlets to this. So there was no YouTube. There was no Google. There's no any of this stuff. And the idea was brilliant. And then the, you know, ideas are only as brilliant as they're executed. And the hard part was just trying to do it so quickly, so fast. And the core of the whole company for him was to be built around television because he felt that was the fastest way to get content out there. And, uh, we assemble an incredible team of people. Um, and I brought all half the people from Columbia. We made a deal with, uh, Columbia that they were going to distribute all of our product. And, and I brought an amazing group of people from Darren Starr to Tom Fontana to Paul Haggis to Ellen DeGeneres to Mitch Hurwitz. I mean, the AA people in the business wanted to work with us and it was and, exciting. And, and you navigated your way with John Feldheimer, which was, uh, again, a very smart thing. You say, oh, I'm going to come here. I'm going to take a lot of my people, so what's the compromise? Well, let's make an overall deal with them where they can distribute the stuff and they'll be happy. And John is a businessman who who understood the benefits, but also I really believe let it happen because he cared about me and, and, and our, our deep relationship and wanted this to succeed for me. And it was going to expand their business too. And if it worked, it was going to be a win-win for everybody. And, and we had – So here you go in this thing. You know, you're given all the financial resources to make deals with people. You're writing checks to people that are like – extra zeros than you wrote at Sony. You know, it was deep pockets there. It was a big new thing, high profile. You got the, you know, microscope on you. And you talk about disappointment and failure. Tell me when you knew that this isn't going the way I, I thought it would I, go. I, I can't talk about it in too much detail, but what I can say was, you know, it, it was a, a moment in time that was really exciting. And I met people and, and did things I never would have before because of, Mike and, and his trust and faith in me to let us go build this thing. Um, but the TV business is a really expensive business and he ended up writing a lot of the checks himself and, uh, was very, put a big strain on him. And I was in the room for, and I'm not going to mention names, a couple of big situations where we really thought the company was going to be funded for hundreds of millions of dollars because with tech companies and, and phone companies and all that kind of stuff, people who saw sort of the future and for a, a bunch of different reasons that ultimately didn't happen. And, and ultimately what happened is our success really became the biggest problem because the more shows we got picked up, the more checks we were writing, the more deficits we had to do. This is what was fascinating about the company. It was one of the few instances that I can ever remember this happening where you were unbelievably successful. I mean, you guys were getting it on the air that even you probably said to yourself, why are they even buying this thing? <laughs> there was a couple I mean, of us. <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. I mean, literally the hottest company in the world. Everybody was saying, "What? what is this? Is this guy made of gold? I mean, everything was going. But the problem was, again, his company was structured to where he was deficiting a lot of stuff. So how often is there in the world where you can experience so much success, but the success was what was bringing you down? And and it ultimately, you know, the, the plan was ahead of its time and, and didn't have all the, 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 the ultimate structure and financing that, that he had hoped and thought it would be. But. You know, and we, everybody had their ups and downs, but he still to me, one of the brightest people I've ever met. He, he knew where all this was going. He was incredibly supportive of me and, and the team that I put together and the people I brought in. And, and it, it was complicated and it was, it was deeply sad and hurtful to see this all sort of crash and burn. What would tell me about the day when you found out that it's over? Um, it had been coming for a while because unfortunately the press was so out to, 
talk about his every move and 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 there was you know a bunch of people in town that did not want this to succeed and so unfortunately the press this was before deadline or any of those things but the the, the LA Times the New York Times the Wall Street Journal it was all writing these stories and we begin reporters calling every day and that just came to a point where the the burden on him was just so significant every day and then you know but you're also dealing with people who had contracts and, and lives and needed to have paychecks and stuff. So you're dealing on the personal pain. You're dealing with the stress of the company falling apart. You're dealing with the shows having to be funded. And it just, it just became too much, but it was a very, it was the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows within a sort of literally a 24 month period. And so then what was your next step? Uh, where'd you go from there? Cause um, here you go, you go into this high profile thing, you leave your mentor and you know, you uh, you leave your uh, significant other. Yeah. Uh, they don't always take you back. No, and it was a, <laughs> again a very very difficult time. And uh, you, know, you you all of a sudden you're not for the first time in you know eighteen twenty years you're not working. What am I going to do? And do you go back into the executive ranks? And uh, there's a very dear friend of mine um, who is my agent and has been a longtime agent named Adam Berkowitz. Uh, it's Creative Artist Agency, and uh, even with all the a tremendous agent, a tremendous agent, and and not someone that I ever even been that close with before this, to be perfectly honest. And uh, he called Kim and I and said, "I want to have a meeting with you guys." And we had known him for years, but never hadn't, hadn't done that much together. Although I, I made a lot. Now of called Kim business. and you, Kim. Kim, I'm sorry, being, is my wife. And my being partner. your wife and your partner. Now, before you get into the story, just your wife was talk about what she was doing in her career before you guys got together and decided, Hey, you know, she, we're married, but we should work together. Just sort of the, the full circle back. She, uh, she worked for years, uh, for a man named Fred Silverman, who was probably one, other than Brandon Tartikoff, one of the, and maybe Grant Tinker, the, the pioneer in the television business, the only man to run all three broadcast networks, the cover of time magazine, We'll go down historically, you know, is one of the most important people in the history of the television business. Was also my father's very close friend. He was an amazing man. And just to tell you a quick story, my first and only experience with Fred was he wanted to do a development deal with one of my clients and he wanted the show to come together and he was you know saying he was going to get on the air and he said I want you to meet me at the Beverly Hills Polo whatever the hell it polo was lunch. <laughs> where he used to. And at the time, unfortunately, I had bought a 1980 Ferrari that was very, very unreliable. <laughs> and I'm excited. I'm, I, you know, I have my client get there early. I tell him it's a half hour earlier than it is. I want him to be there. And I'm leaving early and I'm driving down Pico Boulevard here. And I go over a pothole and something happens with the Ferrari where <laughs> it just like steams all over the place. And I'm in the middle of the road, the thing's steaming. And this is before cell phones. I don't have any way to get a hold of Fred. And my car's in the middle of the road. And so I I'm here, police are coming. And I, I say, can I borrow a phone? And we don't have phones or whatever. And I miss my meeting with Fred Silverman. Oh, wow. And after I finally got to my office, I, I called his office. He picked up the phone, and I was just about to say, uh, Fred, you know, I'm, I'm sorry uh, this thing happened with me. And he was like, what the f kind of a person are you? Who the f are you? I'm Fred Silverman. You don't call. You don't write. You mother f 
how could I ever work with you? I will never work with you. And he just hung up on me. <laughs> and uh, Fred had a bit of a historic temper. Uh, <laughs> he's calmed down in the later years, but uh, he was that was, my, he was Fred Silverman. There was no other. That know? was my first That's experience fantastic. with him. Luckily, he talked to me after that. But, That's uh, a good thing. Uh, but keep going. I'm sorry. So uh, my wife, Kim, uh, had worked for Fred for years, and my father and Fred had been doing a lot of stuff together. And so she knew my dad before I ever knew her. And then when I was at Columbia TriStar, um, she had been wanting to find a new job, and I ultimately hired her through a series of people to become the head of comedy development. Now, were you a couple then? No, we didn't even know each other. I hired okay. her just as a business. and um, So you dipped your pen worked, in company ink. We worked together for years. Uh, <laughs> we were both in other relationships and uh, <laughs> decided that maybe, you know what, it was time for us to actually you know work together and be a, be a couple too. And then we left together to go start ATG. Well, let's go back to that for a second. I know I don't want you to yeah. feel uncomfortable because I think it's, it's this is something that I really wanted to talk about. I wish she, she could make it, but hopefully it'll be another time where she could. Very few married couples work together successfully. And so you meet each other, you fall in love, and then you decide to work together, knowing that most people who work together you know, look, it's hard enough to keep a relationship in this town. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> but uh, but to keep it together when you're actually working together, it's, it's like... It's, it's the first question people ask because most people are amazed. How would you not kill each other? My God, you know, literally, because we end up spending, you know, 18, 20 hours a day together. And what we always say is we worked together for years very successfully before we were ever a couple. We knew how to work together. We became friends. We always say the work part's easy. It's, the, it's when you get home part is the hard part is the, the relationship part. And and I think this business really is a pull on relationships. And when you spend so much time at work with these people, you naturally tend to get close to people. And, and we did. Um, and it's it kept us together. And so our life as producers and executives and as parents, it enables us to be in two different places at one time. It enables us to be able to, you know, it's always, it's, you know, these jobs don't stop. It's not like it was four o'clock on a Friday. You don't get to stop. It's, it's constant. You're Blackberry, you're reading or you're meeting or you're doing something. So it can, it, it's just so ingrained into who we are that we can turn on and turn it off. But it's, it's just, it's, it's an ease for us where everyone else literally been on panels and spoken to things where literally the only question they want to know is how is it possible in God's earth that you guys could live together and work together and do this? But for us, it's just very natural. And when, just real briefly, like, you know, you work with her for a long time. She works with you for a long time. Was there a moment or something that happened where there was a light bulb that went off in both of your heads like, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to have a relationship with this person? And did you remember that moment and how it happened and what, what transpired? There was a few, and yes, and, and a little personal, but uh, the ultimate, we just really became so connected as friends, and I think people people around us saw it before we saw it, and people would sort of say, you know, people look at us and say, assume that we were a couple and we weren't, and, uh, you know, then it just started to make, so wait a minute, I mean, what everybody's sort of saying, it is right, we do have this connection and this comfort and this friendship, and, uh, you know, then, as I said, we both... <laughs> We're in situations that, that ended and uh, we looked at each other and said, we, sh we should try this. It just felt really, it felt like we had been a couple even though we weren't for years. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand 
enhance and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Middle of the, you know, the, the pain and everybody's writing about it and the company's going under and then it was a very difficult time that uh, Adam Berkowitz, an agent and, uh, you know, someone we knew but not a close friend called and said, can we meet with you guys? And um, he came to us and said, you guys should be producers. See, this is people like you and, and, and you guys are good at what you do. And the the idea of non-writing producers was sort of coming back into favor um, because they're people who have been executives who are good at putting shows together. And, and, and as you know, so many wonderful writers out there don't like to have to deal with studios and networks and pitching and budgets and stars they want to write. And so the idea of... And the idea of a non-writing executive producer is something that you have to be really extraordinary because you're talking about a network spending an enormous amount of extra money for somebody who's not writing anything and not acting in anything. But you prove to yourself and prove to them that you're amazing and you can keep it all together and you're valuable and then that's how it all comes about. goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning of you doing action, which is, you know, you, you know, I've always felt in my career as a studio executive that smart, talented people who have a role in helping with the talent or talking to people or putting things together or just have good taste or someone that I know that I could rely on and we wanted to be that, those people for, for people and, um, you know, there seemed to be a need in, in comedies at the time. And, and Adam just said, you guys should do this and we're going to represent you. And guess what? We've already basically made a deal for you at Warner Brothers. And we're <laughs> like, what? And, uh, uh, Bruce Rosenblum, a very dear friend of ours and, and, and who was running Warner Brothers and Peter Roth, another close friend had been people that I knew when we're, we're peers and, and, you know, we're rival studio heads and, but we always really liked each other. And they just welcomed us with open arms and said, come over here and, and, and this should work and we'll help you build your company. And, uh, and we ended up staying for five years and, and had, you know, many shows on the air, but obviously one that stuck that did really well for all of us is Two and a Half Men. And, and take us into Two and a Half Men and uh, tell us about the how that came about, the casting process. Was Charlie Sheen, you know, he was already, it was an offer made to him to do it and that was it? That was the guy they identified or was he in a process where you were looking at a bunch of other people? It's kind of a long, complicated story. Uh, well, that's why we're here. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll make it short as I can. Um, but it's a good story. So it, because it goes to, you have to believe in yourself. And if there's something you, you see and have a vision for, you have to do whatever it is in your power to try to make it happen. And this was kind of a, a famous story and sort of how this came together. So we were doing stuff at, uh, at Warner Brothers and, and an idea had been brought to us that we needed to try to figure out how to sell. And there's a very dear friend of ours, uh, who runs comedy at CBS named Wendy Trilling, who's been a longtime friend and supporter of ours. And we, Call it up and we just said, you know, we got this deal and this idea and we just kind of need you to buy it. I just, you know, don't ask me questions. We haven't put it together, but just trust us. And she's like, I love you. We had done King Queens. We had done the name. We had a lot of success together. She says, I want to work with you guys this year. If this is the one you want to do, then I'll just try. Yes, it's, it's a, it's a sale based on not much. A just, sale for a pilot script. script. A sale for a pilot script. She says, just put it together and come back to me. And, uh, Which for a network is literally like, depending on the writer, is is like cab fare. And when I say cab fare, it could be seventy five thousand to like God knows three hundred thousand or more. But still, for them, with all the millions they have committed for development, right. but also unheard of without literally any details. Just that's to say, right. I, 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 that I, I care enough that about she, you guys she had for you. she had for us, and we had for her. And she said, "Great, just go sort of put it together." And we started looking for writers and so, and, and and to try to sort of find this idea. We were talking about an idea about two brothers. 
And, um, it took a long time and we couldn't really find somebody. And, uh, Chuck Lorre, who was one of the big, big writer producers in, in, in town and had tremendous success with Roseanne and Sybil and Grace Under Fire and all these shows was under contract at Warner Brothers. I knew him a little bit because I offered him a tremendous amount of money when I was at Sony to come work over there and Warner Brothers paid him more money and he ended up going to Warner Brothers. So I called him and uh, said, would you hear something? And, uh, and, and he did. And, uh, he was intrigued, but he also, was coming to the end of a very big deal. And, uh, I was told under no uncertain circumstances, am I allowed to talk to him and that, that we need him to focus on the thing that he was doing and please don't bother him. And, um, of course you of course didn't, I listen did. to most I people. didn't listen to most people. And, uh, and I just kept calling Chuck and, and a very dear friend of mine named Bob Roeder, who's an agent I had just tremendous respect for. A I think tremendous one the, uh, literary, one of the greatest, the greatest television minds in the history and was a, another mentor to me who just, you know, he and I had a lot of success together and he just always respected me and he represented Chuck. And, and what I just kept saying to everybody was that every time I would meet with Chuck and it goes back to what we were talking to before, he would get inspired about this idea, even though he would keep telling me all the reasons he couldn't do it, but he would then be pitching and talking and telling me why, you know, about his mother and his relationship and, and about divorce and why no one is dealing with the realities of custody and going back and forth and how hard it is and all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, people, why, why hasn't that been done? And every time we would get together, he'd reluctantly get together and we would go have breakfast on, uh, on Montana. He would keep spinning further. And so I sent a couple of famous emails to a bunch of people saying, you have to let me do this. Like this is, this, this is going to be great. This is the show that will go ultimately behind Raymond that you haven't been able to find. You have not been able to find that companion piece. Please let me do this. And it just kept coming back. No, 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 no. And, uh, it was just a long series of hurdles. I ultimately offered to write a check for the, for the script myself. I said, I'll take you all out. Just let me pay it. If you just let Chuck do it. And they didn't know what to do with that information because no one had ever offered to write a personal check to pay for a script like that when you're talking about Time Warner and CBS. So they all just kind of get rid of me, just said, fine, but just keep it under the radar. Don't talk about it. Just kind of go do it. And uh, Chuck then said to me, I'll, I'll do it, but I need to co-write it with a, with a friend of mine who's kind of out of work at the time named Lee Aronson, and he needs health insurance, so I got to have his name. He was a great writer who I had to fire off a show not too long ago, so I had to go back to Lee and say, hey, let's work together again. But I always thought Lee was a really talented writer, which he is and was. And uh, then Chuck said to me, uh, but I really want to write this for Charlie Sheen. He's out on the market. He'd done one year of Spin City. And uh, Again, called- another example of an actor or somebody for television that wasn't necessarily hot, but that you could tell – was ready to do something and, and, special. And they had huge expectations for him. They wanted like, someone to put up a check for like a million or two million dollars, which nobody was going to do. And, and, and so we ended up getting him in a room with Chuck and I called his manager, called his agent. And he was about to sign on to a show at NBC that literally the next day. And, and Chuck had said to him, just give me two weeks. Give me two weeks and I'll have a script on your door. And to, you know, to his credit and his, his people's credit, they said, well, we, we, of course we should wait. Let's wait and see what they come up with. Cause it sounded kind of funny. And, um, I did, and uh, and it just was one of those things that just went very far under the radar, and no one really knew about it. And at the time, Warner Brothers was doing six other comedy pilots with CBS. Um, this was not on anybody's radar. It was the last one to be picked up. We sold it really late, like in February. and Which is unheard of, because uh, normally what you do is you sell shows between, let's say, July 4th and maybe up until Thanksgiving. Sometimes you sell some things in December before the break. Very rare. But... I've never heard of anything selling for a network in February because that's normally when they're some they're shooting pilots sometimes during that time. And, and they just and it's one of those that came together because Chuck had such a strong vision. The reason why I pushed so hard for it because I just every time I spoke to him, I knew that it was going to be great. And there just there are those moments in time in your career when you just sort of know 
that if you can push to make this happen and navigate the minefields, that it, it has a chance to be great. If the, the stars have to align, everything has to come together. But when I, when I heard him talk about it, when I saw that script and when there was interest from Charlie, then we had to go make his deal, which was crazy. But you just knew, you just knew there was a voice and a character and, and, and Chuck, it was coming out of him to write about divorce and about, uh, you know, his relationship with his mother and, different women over the years and Charlie's his experiences. And so I really put my neck on the line to, we, to, to push it, to make it happen. And then, you know, the same story we told about Helen before, you know, John Cryer's name came up. We had to find the Alan character and, you know, we were all told under no uncertain circumstances, don't bring him in. He's done 18 pilots and 15 series and none of them ever worked. And yes, he's talented and yes, he's funny, but you know, it's, it's not going to happen with him. So don't even do it. And, and we had seen it in a room and we, we literally it was that same moment of Helen and Paul. We saw John and Charlie read the scenes together and it felt like they were brothers and it was exactly what was in Chuck's head. And we called back and said, you guys are going to have to suffer through this and see it. And it was one of those, again, rare moments. It was undeniable. You walked in that room and that old basement on uh, Fairfax over there and and those two, and the same day, and I'll never forget this too. That uh, and Jimmy Burroughs was there. We brought him in to direct. We brought this little kid in. We only brought one kid. Jim in. Burroughs, probably the greatest television director of all time, in the history of of of, of, t- of comedy television. And we brought this little kid in named Angus T. Jones, and he had done a movie called The Rookie. And and you know he wasn't used to it. He was like nine, eight or nine years old, and he kind of laughed through his whole audition and. Everybody said, are you guys sure? And, and Chuck looked at, at Les and everybody else and said, yeah, this kid can do it. He's going to be great. I don't want to see any more kids. This is the kid. And uh, they had the confidence enough to say, John was great and this little kid's adorable and, and hopefully he can do it. And uh, it was just one of those things, again, as the pieces started to come together, you started to feel like you had a chance to do something special here. Now let's talk about when the pieces don't come together and they start falling apart and through circumstances beyond your control when you're a producer. Take us through the most unbelievable situation that ever probably happened in recent memory in television was the Charlie Sheen situation and how you got through that and how the show has survived through that. Not only that, but the Angus situation as well. I mean, it's unbelievable that the show is like Teflon. It's bulletproof. I, I really say it's a testament to Chuck. I mean, I really, this was at, at that point in time. And, you know, there's, there's a couple of those people throughout the history of time who have, the tenacity and the ability to, to sort of make things happen. And he's a genius at what the form that he does. I mean, he's one of the few, you know, there was Norman Lear as we were growing up. And then truthfully, you know, probably Chuck is the other one who's just, he's, he's a, a brilliant person in that form. And those were painful years for everybody. And we really were sort of to the, being very candid, we're, we're off to the side of it. And, and it was hard because we had a very strong relationship with Chuck and, and, and became really fond of Charlie over the years. And, and it was a, Charlie was, a very diligent worker and professional and nice to everybody and but clearly had a problem and the problem that you you've seen and experienced over the years of different artists and things and that's something that even though it's hidden and and pushed aside sometimes it just it, it can't be kept down for that long and and the the sad part is because you saw someone you, you know when you spent now eight years with someone almost nine months a year and you're with them days every you know hours on end and you care about people and you see them starting to self-destruct it became sad and then it took a in a very dark turn on, on everyone was very hard on everybody and because you know that that moment where you there's always those moments in anything relationship business or personal where certain things keep going and going and going and you try to say to yourself okay we can save this this can be better uh, it's gonna be better and there's that one day that you all come together or one person comes together where you just say we have to 
to cut the cord. Yeah. Do you remember that day and what 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 happened and how uh, how it came about? It's just, it's not, again, stuff because of so many different situations that can't really be gone into in depth. Um, but it, it, it was really what I remember being a sad day for everybody. It was really what ultimately was people that you know we had all done this together and gone you know not many times in your career is there something of this magnitude that has this much success and and this much uh upside for everybody and it was huge to to chuck and it was huge to charlie and it was huge for us and it was huge for cbs and it was huge for warner brothers and 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 everybody felt it just saddened and then they felt angry and then it just it took to a whole different place with all that crazy internet stuff and that's that that's where it got too far where you you know usually in these situations you figure out a way to pull it back in and you get everybody back together and i've done a lot of that over my career and you put everybody in a room and you realize all the all the greatness and you try to keep it together but what that was the sort of the point where it just got too too crazy for everybody and, and, and as an artist you know here's the example of what can go wrong as an artist here's an example how you can get in your own way and mess up your career and angus has that example firsthand he's there he sees everything going on Yet he has all the examples in front of him, and then he doesn't make the exact mistake the way Charlie made it, but he made a similar mistake where he went out and showed a side of himself that damaged him and... And, he lost the gig. And, and ultimately also, you know, the sadness when you've seen a kid who, you know, you've known since he was eight years old and you've watched him grow up in front of your eyes and become sort of part of your extended family. And he was, you know, always a really good kid and lovely parents and, and, and Chuck and everybody took really good care of him. And, you know, it was, it was sad to see. And, uh, you know, you, 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 your first ending is always like, Oh my God, what happened? Like, I, I, I care about this person, you know, and you, why, why is this happening? And it seems it's not the person as it was with Charlie during those times. And you saw with Angus, it's not the person I've known every day for years and years, seen every week, week after week and spent time with, excuse me. Um, so when you see that sort of self-destructive side, you know, your first instinct is, oh my God, this is tragic. But then your second instinct became, you know, the, the business part of it and people's jobs and careers and, and a lot of money on the line. And, and everybody has, you know, responsibility to try to pull themselves back together. And sometimes it just, the sad part is in both those situations, it crossed that line and it crossed a line where it could not be dialed back, unfortunately, where the actions were, were, were too, too, too harsh to, to then say, you know, we can forgive this and get past it. And people took it very personally. People feel like, again, your first instinct is you want to protect them and help them. And your second instinct is how can they do this to us? And, and we have to protect this, this thing. And unfortunately, that's what happened in both situations. Different circumstances, but ultimately the same result. I'd like to close this off with a, a segment I like to call a holy moments. And I'd like to ask you a few things that, I, um, that I think will be meaningful to the audience. What's your proudest professional moment? Ah, uh, that is an excellent question. Um, there have been a bunch, but I, I would say moments in time when early on and standing on that stage at the two and a half men and just watching that audience sort of, uh, just, being so part of it, watching those characters come to life, and even though we we, we didn't write it, and other people do, and 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 made, made that we were very responsible for making this happen, and it was just, you know, when you look at it now, we're going into season eleven when the show is all said and done, whether it's this year or hopefully keeps going. I think we're now the third longest running live action sitcom in the history of the television business, behind Ozzy and Harriet, and maybe My Three Sons. I mean, that's that's something we're pretty proud of. And I have to say, I've had I've had a lot of very fortunate moments in this business, and really, it's you know, it's about the people you work with more than anything else. But um, it was it was it was a great thing for all of us, and continues to be. Your biggest disappointment 
professionally? I think the whole ATG thing not not working out ultimately was a was a really you know there was a, a lot of burden and pressure on our shoulders and 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 really called in a lot of people and and to, to do this and the quick rise and the, the even the, the really quick destruction was that was a, a huge disappointment it was a really it was a, it was a hard time. One of the things I thought you were going to say there is something that we have sort of a six degrees of separation. I have a client, Dana Dute, that uh, booked a pilot of uh, yours uh, that's, that's a called a Friend Me. During that show, we lost a great friend in the business, Alan Kirschenbaum, who took his own life. And then to me, like, I looked at you one day, you know, after because I was doing something with you. And it was around that time. And, I, you know, you could see the toll that, that the business has taken on you. But... What I was amazed about, I remember that day that I was around you, I felt to myself that you almost were in self-preservation mode where you were like, look, this isn't my fault. This is something that this man struggled with. It's not something that happens all of a sudden. I put a lot of work into the show, but the work doesn't mean anything because it's a friend that's somebody I believe in. And when you see somebody who you feel helpless that you can't save... And sometimes you don't even know the extent of how difficult it is. And then one day you turn around, they're gone. The funny part is when you said what was your uh, hardest moment or darkest moment, I was thinking sort of professionally. And, and because our business is such a blur of personal professional, I, I looked and that is one of my darkest moments in my life. And I don't look at it as, as a business thing. Um, he was such a dear friend of mine and someone that you didn't, if you had said to me of all the people you've met in the history of your time in the business, who who was likely to have that happen to it? He would have been the last person. And he, someone that was so close to him was just such a personal friend that I don't even think of it as a business situation anymore. It was so that I would you say if, if someone asked, what was one as, as your personal disappointments or greatest hurts? Uh, his passing and the tragedy of his life ending was one of the greatest pains and hardships that I've ever been through. Not just as a business. Yes, we were doing a show, but that became irrelevant. It was someone that I so deeply and Kim cared about and had such a history with. And, so many good times and memories and things that, that, you know, I'm at the park playing basketball with my son and get the call that, uh, you know, that happened. It was, it was an outer body experience. And I, you know, unfortunately something I, I think about him every day and I literally just talking about him yesterday with someone. And I, to this day, I, I, I can't believe that he's not here. And that's just, that is a tremendous personal disappointment beyond professional. Talk about to our audience and our viewers as a young executive, what advice do you have to go from a high school in California or in Peoria, Illinois, or wherever it is, and you have a dollar and a dream for the business to work your way through this business and get to the point where you are today? And then the follow-up question is, what advice do you have for young actors, actresses, stand-up comedians, sketch performers, on what they have to do to break through and get the attention of people like yourself to let them know that they can, too, uh, break through and make a big difference in this business? A question we're asked all the time, and, and again, no perfect answer to it, but I, I will say a lot of times, and you know, I meet with a lot of kids who come out of schools and this and that, I say, you, you got to start somewhere. You got you to get in somewhere. You got to find, find a person or people who will let you be part of an experience. And once you get, I always say the hardest, the two hardest jobs are getting the first one and then sort of make that first job. And, and whatever, wherever it is that you decide that you want to be at or you can get in, absorb everything. And really, you know, I always found for me, 
I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I started listing things that I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to be an agent. I knew I didn't want to be, you know, on a set and be a director. And, and so I started to find the path that I liked, which was working on ideas and developing material. And, you know, the, the, the exciting part about today is there are so many different ways. I met with these two kids this morning, just happened to two young guys. They're internet sensations. And they said to me, look, we, we're too scared to go through traditional process. We thought, wait a minute, we can go take a camera and go shoot them stuff and, you know, shoot some stuff and put some stuff out there. And they have the number five most viewed internet guys and they've got, you know, show. And it's like anybody can do that. And if you have a, a dream or a vision or a passion, but I always say to, to writers, everyone's like, if you're right, go write, write people, write material and get it to people. It'll get read, get it to the people, but don't sit there and feel precious about it. Like if you're, if you're an actor, do scenes and do workshops and go do plays and, and, and work on your craft. You, we start talking about the standups. It's, you know, the guys that, you know, did one set of the improv and got a development deal and not the guys that made it. It's the guys that night after night after night did the cities and the tours and things and perfected that voice and that craft. I, I don't think it's any different. If you want to be a director, you can take, you know, your cell phone and go shoot a movie these days and cut it on your home computer. You can, you can, you can write something and shoot it. Or if your friend's an actor, I mean, there's just, there's many more opportunities available now than there, than there was. The traditional corporate path of, hey, I want to go run a network or a studio, not necessarily that easy to do, and there's no exact science to it. But whatever it is that interests you, you have to commit yourself to doing that. And it's, you know, it's hard. I would be scared as a young person starting out today, but yet I look at it from my agent point of view and say the opportunities to get noticed and the potential to put your stuff out there. There was no, there was no American Idol or those shows, and that's where the music business now, you can get discovered in those ways. So I just, I feel like the opportunity now is kind of unlimited, but it is, it is important, whatever it is, that thing that interests you, to go full steam ahead and pursue that. You know, and most of our things about writers, I always tell people, go write, put it down, and it will evolve, it will get better, get it to people who can give you help and thought and guidance, but you got to start somewhere. Well, Eric, thank you for taking so much time. You're amazing. You're first class oh, all you, the parents. time. It's a pleasure to see you. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career 
and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.